Blog Talk Radio. Here we go. 
President Trump had a big meeting at the White House on the issue of vaping. That, that's a funny sentence to say, but at the same time, obviously vaping's been in the news a lot recently, and you have this uh, moral panic around it where people are pretending like it's the most dangerous thing that anybody has ever done in human history. Um, so there's been tremendous pressure put on the government to act because of media hysteria and because of some little groups that are really pushing this out there. Um, so Trump had a roundtable meeting. He had people from the vaping industry and people who are anti-vaping, and it was over an hour. I watched the whole thing. Believe it or not, it was actually pretty interesting. It was pretty interesting it, it, to see, you know, like a topic debated openly, and you got like Trump in the middle pretending to pay attention and follow along. <laughs> and he's got his, his fake serious guy face on, like, right, right, vaping, right. <laughs> But anyway, it actually ended up being good. Mitt Romney was sitting next to Trump, and uh, he was massively anti-vaping. And, of course, he had terrible arguments, but that's, you know, that's expected. Believe it or not, Trump is better than Romney on it. Trump had initially announced that they're banning all vape flavors, and then that became, like, temporary, and then he wanted to hear out other people on the issue. I think what happened is you had some people from within the conservative movement tell him, hey, man, don't do that. Don't ban all the flavors. Um, that's not cool. And um, here you're going to see how he kind of changed his mind a little bit over time. After hearing counter arguments, Trump is going to accidentally make the case perfectly as to why not just, you know, cracking down on vaping is not necessarily the brightest idea, but, because, but he explains how the drug war is a terrible idea. Now, he doesn't realize that's what he's doing, but of course the logic applies there as well. Take a look. The one, the one thing I see, though, is that you watch prohibition, you look at, you know, with the alcohol, you look at cigarettes, you look at all. If you don't give it to them, it's going to come here illegally, okay? They're going to make it. But instead of Reynolds or Jewel or, you know, legitimate companies, good companies making something that's safe, they're going to be selling stuff in a street corner that could be horrible. That's the one problem I can't uh, seem to forget. I mean, I've seen it. You have to look at the history of it. And now, instead of having a flavor that's at least safe, they're going to be having a flavor that's that's poison. That's a big problem. There are thousands of companies, Mr. President, and, and there are very large e-cigarette companies at this table. But most of the members of our trade association are small mom-and-pop shops. They're small manufacturers. They're small businesses that have built this industry from the ground up, not from the top. So what are you saying? And we say you have to implement, as you said, this is a complex problem, so you need a sophisticated plan. A flavor ban will not work, and you've articulated one critical reason why it will not work. People will just go to the black market, and that's because adults are demanding these flavors. This is not happen. Let's say you had, okay, you just ended your flavors, right? Isn't that going to be, yeah, isn't that going to be just so, you know, illegally that somebody's going to open up a shop in China and ship it in? China. And you don't know what standard you're getting. Isn't that a problem? No, you can buy can buy 15 different versions of Jewel Mango, which have been off the market. And that's where the taxes are coming in. Or really not from your product, it's from product that's made on the black market. Absolutely. On the black market.
Yes. <laughs> that, that, what you just said. Think about that and just apply it more broadly. Now, later on in the same meeting, you have somebody who's against vaping chime in, and they, like, really smugly say, like, Mr. President, that argument that you used about counterfeit products being really unsafe, and maybe that's a reason why we should keep all these vape flavors on the market. You can say that about anything, Mr. President. You can say that about drugs. You can say that about, like, heroin. It's like, yeah, but I know you think you're making a point against what he said, but that's just more of an argument in favor of what he just said. So, like, I get it. Don't, you know, I'm not saying that the hardest version of every single drug should be allowed on the marketplace because the hardest version of every single drug can kill you. Certainly for a lot of them, they can kill you. If you have crystal meth out there, your teeth are going to rot out of your fucking mouth. You're gonna, I, I remember hearing a story about how there, are these, there was this couple who did crystal meth, and then they, were, they went outside. They went to go walk to the store. They like got lost, and they froze to death, and they didn't feel that they were freezing to death because they were high on crystal meth. Don't get me wrong, guys. If you, if you end the drug war and legalize tax and regulate drugs broadly, that doesn't mean you're going to be able to go to the store and get crocodile or get crystal meth or get like the really harmful version of various substances. But should you be able to get a, a very strictly regulated version of that kind of a high? Yes. Yes, you used to be able to go to the store and get, I think it was called Lognum? Lognum? This, I'm going back, you know, early 1900s. I mean, this is something that was around back in the day. It's like a, a version of, of morphine. It's like a weaker version of morphine. Um, obviously, there are a variety of uppers that are available. Is it really that extreme to say, other versions of uppers should be available? No. <laughs> now, again, that doesn't mean you legalize the harshest version of all those substances, but if you allow a weaker, tightly regulated version of all these various different substances, what's likely to happen is you'll see um, the, the public health reaction will be better. In other words, you won't have violent crime associated with all these products, um, and you won't have the worst case scenario, which is people dying from an unregulated wild, wild west marketplace run by criminals and gangsters. So, like, yeah, the argument that he's making there is exactly correct, which is why, you know, not only should you have the, the, the flavored vape products available and regulate it, but you should also end the drug war, legalize tax and regulate marijuana, legalize tax and regulate various uppers legalize tax and regulate even versions of painkillers. You know, we have the opioid crisis, the op but what ends up happening is people get addicted to the pills, and then there was a crackdown on the pills, and then they go, okay, well, i got to get my fix somewhere. So they go to the black market, and they get heroin. The heroin is laced with fentanyl, and then fentanyl is a freaking horse tranquilizer, and then people die because they have what would be a, a dose of heroin that they could, they could take, but since it's laced with fentanyl, and that's way more powerful – slows down their respiratory system, and they die. So, yeah, Mr. President, exactly what you just said about vaping. Oh, my God, the counterfeit products, they're going to be poison, and people are going to have that, and they're going to die. That's exactly why you should back off of the vape crackdown. I have no problem, by the way, with 
quality controls, the FDA getting involved in that way. I have no problem with age restrictions. That makes sense to me as well. Um, but the exact same mindset that you laid out there is the exact reason why, as you accurately point out, prohibition was an abysmal failure and the mafia got incredibly powerful and crime shot through the roof and people were dying because of bad batches of alcohol, but also why the drug war is such a problem. And what's crazy is, you know, as he uh, seemingly gets this logic when it comes to vapes, he doesn't seem to get it when it comes to drugs. And that's a huge issue because you're talking about a situation which is already overly militarized. And now you have people like Tom Cotton, Republican senator, looking at what's happening in Mexico. And he goes, wow, we should wage like a a war on drugs or something. This is crazy. We've been doing it. (laughs) We've been doing it. And it led to the situation we're in. Do you guys understand? They do this thing called the decapitation strategy, which is, oh, take out the leader of the cartel and then you're good. And then it's like, it's like, there's Al-Qaeda, you take out Osama bin Laden, and then Al-Qaeda is not going to be as powerful because they don't have their leader anymore. That's the theory. What ends up happening? You took out the leader of the cartel. In this case, remember, it was El Chapo who we took out, and he's behind bars now. And then you had um, a, a splinter. You had the drug cartel become fractionalized. You have two people now fighting to control the drug cartel, and there's a war in the streets over who's going to end up controlling the drug cartel. So in an attempt to decrease violence, decrease criminal activity, um, and make everybody safer, you actually made the situation worse because you got rid of the main guy, and then there was a battle over who's going to be the next main guy. And, you know, you led to a situation like we had just recently in Mexico where they captured El Chapo's son, who's going to be one of the next, you know, uh, drug cartel leaders sitting on the throne, drug kingpin. Um, They captured him, and then they had to let him go. The government did. Why? Because the drug cartel was like, oh, if you keep him behind bars, we're just going to do a genocide of a whole town in Mexico. So let him go. And what was Amo supposed to do? He's like, I'm not going to have a genocide happen on my watch. What am I going to do? So he had to let him go. Guys, the only way you defeat the drug cartels is to put them out of business. How do you put them out of business? Legalize tax and regulate drugs. That's it. How are they going to compete with a better quality product that costs less? How are they going to do that? How are they going to compete with you're able to go to Walgreens or CVS or a weed store and get some weed that's better? You don't have to go to a back alley with a shady character in order to do it. I mean, it's common sense, but at the same time, it's not common sense because it is a little bit counterintuitive. Like, what do you mean? You're going to get rid of the drug problem by having more drugs available? What? Actually, yes, (laughs) that's exactly what we're going to do. So this same mindset that he laid out here for vaping is the same mindset that um, he should apply when it comes to the drug war as well, but he's not. He's going in the other direction with the drug war. He's going in the direction of, um, you know, increased militarization, which is an abysmal failure. We've wasted trillions of dollars. You have uh, crime is at an all-time high. You have deaths from a literal hot war because it's a war on drugs. So, I wish he would think about this across the board. Now, I will say, though, here's the the sad part at the end of this conversation. I don't know what direction he's going to go in. I don't know what Trump is going to do next. Because when you watch the whole meeting, he actually seems torn. He actually seems like, okay, the people who are pro-vape, they have some arguments that he's sympathetic to. But the people who are against vaping, he listened to them, and he seems to be sympathetic to what they're saying as well. 
Um, so I don't know what he's going to do. Actually, wrong. There's one thing I know for sure he's going to do because everybody at the table agreed and he didn't fight back, and that is make the legal age 21. Um, so that they're definitely going to do. But And they'll probably do an advertising ban. Like even if they allow flavors, they'll say you can't advertise for flavored vape, which is that's fine with me. I think that's a reasonable regulation. Um, but I don't know what direction he's going to go in overall. So in other words, are, are you going to allow tobacco-flavored vape, menthol-flavored vape, and other flavors to be on the market for adults? Or are you going to ban the flavors and leave tobacco and menthol? Or the other thing that the hardliners are calling for here, only allow tobacco-flavored vape. Don't allow even menthol, which is wild because, you know, if you know anything about cigarettes and tobacco, um, there was a time when they they allowed flavored cigarettes and then the flavored cigarettes were banned, but they did allow tobacco and menthol. Menthol is a very common cigarette flavor, which is viewed as like there's now there's two major cigarette flavors, tobacco and menthol. And they're saying maybe even ban the menthol vape. And a lot of the arguments they use are, oh, my God, you're providing a pathway into kids start using, kids start vaping, and then there's a pathway into smoking tobacco products, which are even worse. And um, what they don't give any credit to, though, is, the, is that the opposite dynamic is true as well. And I know because anecdotally, I am one of those people where I was a smoker, and then I used blue e-cigarettes, and I vaped, and that got me off of anything. Like, I don't smoke anything at all. I don't vape. I don't smoke. And probably one of the main reasons I was able to quit is because of that transition period where if I had a craving for a cigarette, I could just take a couple hits off of, a, of an e-cigarette, and I was good. And it was menthol, by the way. I like the menthol flavor. So, I mean, it helped me, and I'm sure there are many people out there who it helped. And the final point is, remember, guys, they actually found out they were able to isolate what was causing all the problems, and it was e-cigarettes. That were that first of all they were cannabis e-cigarettes, so they were getting people high, which should still be allowed if they're done properly. But but there was an ingredient in there. I think they were saying it was the vitamin E that was in there, which um, and it, it wasn't I, again it was like counterfeit products. It wasn't high quality products, obviously, and that was giving people severe lung issues. So we know the ingredient, we know it was counterfeit, and we know the kind of you know, e-cigarette it was, and now there's this moral panic where they're trying to crack down on, like, all e-cigarettes because there was, like, one very specific kind that was giving people problems. Well, just regulate the bad ingredient out of the product. <laughs> Get rid of the counterfeit. Like, much easier, simpler solutions which still allow adults to be relatively free. But no, we're having, of course, there's always the moral busybodies who want to tell you what you can and can't do. And, you know, I mean, it really drives me crazy that we have a situation where you can go fight for your country and die, but if you're an adult and you want to have a flavored vape, they're going to tell you no. What? <laughs> then don't give me the land of the free nonsense. Don't give me that. You don't, you, you never allow, no politician is ever allowed again to go to, Give a speech and say, yes, we believe in liberty and freedom. Because it's like, well, you don't even let people vape flavors. <laughs> like, that's the opposite of freedom. So it's just weird that there's always this overcorrection, this crackdown, this moral panic, as if this is the biggest problem ever. I mean, guys, let's keep it real here. How many gun deaths do we have every year? 32,000 thereabouts. 
and that includes homicides and suicides and accidents and all that stuff. And they're, they're, they're treating this as a bigger issue when there's like, what, a couple hundred people who've been impacted negatively by uh, vaping. I mean, cigarettes kill 400,000 people a year. What are we talking about here? It's obviously not as dangerous as that. And this is getting the massive crackdown. It just makes no sense. But anyway, um, I recommend it's on the White House YouTube channel. I recommend you watch the whole thing if you're a nerd like me. Um, And it it is interesting. It is interesting to see the debate and everybody going back and forth. And you can see where everybody stands. And Trump does appear to be a little bit torn. If I had to make a prediction, I would say... They're going to make the legal age 21. That's one of the things that they're definitely going to do. Um, And I would guess that Trump is going to lean on the side of allowing tobacco and allowing menthol. But I think he might ban the flavors. I think he might ban the flavors. Because he did seem sympathetic to the people who were arguing against the flavors as well, even though you just heard him sympathetic to the people who were pro-flavor. So, anyway, there it is. Um, Mr. President, please apply this logic more objectively, and you'll see the drug war is nonsense, and we should legalize, tax, and regulate drugs. Okay, next. Rick Perry is the energy secretary, which means Rick Perry is in charge of the nukes. We live in the dumbest possible world. (laughs) Donald Trump is president. He has the authority to declare nuclear war, and Rick Perry is the energy secretary. So he's in charge of those nukes. I'm not sure I could come up with two people who I'd want to control that less than these two. So anyway, um, Rick Perry spoke to Fox News, and he weighed in on Trump's presidency, and he made some eyebrow-raising comments. God's used uh, imperfect people all through history. King David wasn't perfect. Uh, Saul wasn't perfect. Solomon wasn't perfect. Uh, And I actually gave the president uh, a little one-pager on those Old Testament kings about a month ago. And I shared it with him. I said, Mr. President, I know there are people that say, you know, you, you said you were the chosen one. Uh, and and I, I said, you were. I, I said, if, if you're a believing Christian, you understand God's plan uh, for the people who uh, rule and, 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 and judge over us on, on this planet in our, in our government. And less people on the left attack Rick Perry, he pointed out to me, he believes Barack Obama was sent by God as well. He said for that moment and that time, he said he thinks for this moment and this time, Donald Trump was sent by God to do great things. So we're going to play the whole clip later, but I think it's interesting. I think it's very interesting. And by the way, I've always been concerned that the level of attacks that the president has endured is really going to dissuade a lot of good people from running uh, for office in the future. And I'll tell you, going across the country talking to supporters of this president, they feel precisely the same way Rick Perry does. Yeah. They, they, they hear the attacks from the media about who he is and his background, and they dismiss it and say, God has used yeah. imperfect people forever because we're all imperfect. But what he has withstood is unlike what really any other mortal yeah. could, could, could understand. So that, having they that memo, say, they also say, really I don't need a savior. I already got one. Yeah. 
how am I supposed to, like, respond to these people? How is any rational human being supposed to take them seriously after they say such stuff? I mean, listen, do I understand that there are people out there who are pro-Trump for a variety of reasons? Sure. Yeah, I get that. That's not too hard to wrap my mind around. Um, When you take it to this level, you're inviting scorn. You're inviting mockery. You're inviting disdain. Because what you're saying is horrifyingly irrational. Just imagine for a split second, there's always a good exercise to do when it comes to stories like this. Just imagine you flip the, the country. Imagine you're watching Iranian state TV, news in Iran, and they're talking about how the Grand Ayatollah is sent here by God, and he's the chosen one. Across the board, every person in this country would be like, That's a good one. But when it comes to a Republican president, you probably have, what, a solid 20% of the country, and I'm being kind by using that number. I could go as high as 30%. But a 20% of the country that goes right on. He's chosen by God. God works in mysterious ways. God has a plan. He's chosen by God. God uses imperfect people. And then I love how he thought he was making it less dumb by saying, now, now, now. Rick Perry also said that Obama was the chosen one for the time and place. Well, it's interesting because he disagreed with everything Obama did, so is he disagreeing with God? But furthermore, I don't care if you think Obama was also sent by God. Neither one was sent by God. (laughs) Neither one was sent by God. There is no sky wizard who's like, I shall put this person in control over here and that person in control over there. And that's the other thing is like, you know even if he's trying to make this argument in the context of the United States, you know that he's drunk on American exceptionalism, too, because at no point would Rick Perry ever concede, like, hey, you know the, uh, the undersecretary in Botswana? That dude was also chosen by God. <laughs> Just imagine other countries and imagine, like, lower levels of, <laughs> of people working within said country. Like, man... The Speaker of the House in New Zealand, totally chosen by God. (laughs) Oh, you're a grown-ass man, son. You are a grown-ass man. I need you to stop being ridiculous. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying you're not allowed to be religious at all. No, if you want to be religious, go right ahead and be religious. You want to believe in whatever the hell you want to believe in, go right ahead and believe in it. But, oh my God. You cannot make such bold proclamations that are obviously preposterous and expect people to then take you seriously. Because now there's no doubt that if these clowns watch somebody like me responding to them, what would they do? Immediately, immediately play the victim card. <laughs> immediately, oh, I'm so pressed. Oh, Christians in America are under attack. Oh. I'm not oppressing you. I'm pointing out you're a moron because <laughs> you're a moron. That's what you are. Imagine believing something like this. Guys, do I have to go through it? Are you going to make me go through it again? Fine, I'll go through it again. Donald Trump has been, over, overall, when you look at the totality of his foreign policy, an incredibly vicious neocon. He's increased drone strikes by 432%. He's doing a massive crackdown on Iran, waging economic warfare. They're struggling to get the medicine they need in the country because of U.S. sanctions. 
Who would Jesus deny medicine to? Who would God deny medicine to? This is the stuff that Donald Trump is engaged in. Don't get me started on his health care policies. Seven million people lost their health insurance under Donald Trump because he repeatedly did executive orders that stab Obamacare in the back. Would God kick seven million people off their health insurance? The answer is, of course, no. If you look at Donald Trump and you say the Lord is working through Donald Trump, then your Lord is really vicious and terrible. <laughs> and it's not enough to just say, Lord works in mysterious ways in response to that. Because what you're asking people to do is stop using their intelligence. What you're asking people to do is stop evaluating basic moral claims. If you tell me kicking 7 million people off of health insurance is a good thing, I say, you're wrong. And I'm correct. <laughs> so it's not, I can't, the year is 2019, and we have guys like Rick Perry in control of the nukes. And he appears to have a sincere belief that Donald Trump is a biblical figure. Donald Trump is the chosen one. And that God has a plan. You know, if he, if he wasn't so religious and he didn't believe God has a plan, and he didn't believe that Trump was the chosen one, maybe he would take, I don't know, say, climate change more seriously. And realize, oh, like, we have to act. We can't just sit here, let everything be as is, and continue running the world economy on fossil fuels. And um, so these beliefs actually are influencing his public policy positions, and that's the worst of all worlds there. On top of just being empirically wrong with what he's saying, um, it's, it's literally impacting his, his worldview and what he does as energy secretary and what he supports as a public figure. So this is really bad, and I'm sure, without a shadow of a doubt, this is something that Donald Trump loves to hear. Loves it. I mean, if you think he's the chosen one, oh, well, then you have uh, security in the administration for the near future until you say something against him, and then maybe he'll turn on you and throw you right under that bus like he's done with about 436 other people. But um, you're just wrong, Rick. Please, for the love of God, stop believing fairy tales and myths and, and in sky wizards and in ancient books that have talking snakes, um, it's obviously clouding your judgment in a very clear way. Yes, Donald Trump is an imperfect man. He's also not blessed by the emperor of the universe, because there is no emperor of the universe. <laughs> you might want to get that through your head. All right, here we go. Joanne Reed. Joanne Reed of MSNBC is diving headfirst into red baiting for the 2020 election. And uh, she did a segment laying out who the Russian favorites are in the Democratic primary. Look. If you think about 2016, you think about now. From, from my outside looking in, you know, perspective, it appears that the Tulsi Gabbard, Joe Biden sort of dichotomy sure. sounds very similar 
to the either Bernie Sanders or Jill Stein versus Hillary Clinton dichotomy. It feels like the Russians are running the same game, only now Biden is Hillary and Tulsi Gabbard is Jill Stein slash Sanders. Right. So it's slightly different in 2020 only because President Trump is the incumbent this time. So for them, it's secure the base with the opposition, just like a political campaign. And so from Putin's perspective, sure, he would love to see Trump in there. And to get that outcome, well, you go against the biggest challengers, you know, to Trump, and you try and prop up people that are divisive or splitting the opposition on the Democratic side. So this would be populist candidates on, on the political left draw from the world, which is a message that Russia wants Americans saying to Americans, so it's a great opportunity for them. Yeah, she uses the term regime change wars a lot, yeah. which is a common term, I, in my understanding, of the way that Russia talks about the right. United States. populist candidates on, on the political left. So the term regime change war is Russian propaganda, according to Joanne Reed. Well, what are you supposed to call it? when the U.S. Uh, either covertly or otherwise decides to overthrow a government that is not threatening us and is not attacking us. When we do an offensive invasion of a country, whether it's the CIA or whether it's the military or whatever it might be, we overthrow a country that wasn't going to attack us. What do you want to call that? What do you want to call that? They're a regime, and we are trying to change that regime through a war. <laughs> it's literally like a tautology. Regime change war. That's what it is. But what she's trying to hint at is, oh, that's portraying America in a negative light. And you know who else likes to portray America in a negative light? Putin. Russia. So what, let, me, let me get this straight. Are we not allowed to talk about America in a negative light in any way, shape, or form? Are we not allowed to talk about any serious issues that need fixing? Because it's so easy to look at you know, somebody describing a problem and saying we need to fix this. It's so easy to look at it and say... That's anti-American. And you know who wants to sow division and discord? Putin. So you're feeding into Putin's, you're doing Putin's bidding. But guys, this is literally what they did. This is what they did. They looked at Black Lives Matter protests and said, ah, Putin, sowing discord in, in America. As if, like, we needed Putin to get involved in order for people to recognize, hey, there's some underlying racial issues in this country that need addressing. I don't think Black Lives Matter would exist if it wasn't for the Kremlin. This is the stuff that they actually push out there. This is what they do, and they push it out there because in the philosophy of the establishment Democrats, the status quo is more or less pretty good. And so if you really want to challenge that status quo, you really want to change stuff, you really want to move us left, obviously you're doing Russia's bidding. I mean, it's so, the thing that's so frustrating about this is it's also just so lowbrow too it's not like it's not even mildly convincing propaganda they put up a chart and literally gave numbers as to which candidates russia prefers so oh russia mentions of the democratic candidates and i'm sure this is just like they went to rt and and grabbed from the coverage at rt these numbers but rt the great ed schultz used to work at rt tom hartman used to work at rt um abby martin used to work at rt there are plenty of people who work in U.S. media and then go work at RT, Scotty Nell Hughes, Jesse Ventura, are all, everything they say now is, is Russian, is like, ooh, Putin believes X, the Kremlin believes X. No. I mean, it's, it's like the BBC. Like, if you hear something from the BBC, you go, Britain says X. No, one commentator at the BBC says X. But see, see what they do? 
They try to, this is scaremongering. This is fear-mongering. This is, you're supposed to go, ooh, who does Russia prefer? Well, I want the opposite of that person. I don't want that person. But, okay, so let's look at the chart. The chart says only 3% of the coverage of Biden is favorable from Russia, which I think just means on RT. Well, yeah, they're right, because he's a terrible candidate, and he says insane things. (laughs) 44% is neutral coverage, 53% is negative coverage. Um, 19% of of Bernie's coverage is favorable, 62% is neutral, 19% is negative. And then the one that they give the most positive coverage to is Tulsi, 46% positive, 44% neutral, 10% unfavorable. Um, So what, what they're trying to get out here is, oh, look at the people who get the least favorable coverage from Russia. Those are your serious candidates. So in other words, that would mean um, get rid of Bernie Sanders, get rid of Tulsi Gabbard. The ones to take seriously are Biden, Harris, and Warren. That's what they're pushing out there because they want you to think something's got to be off if Russia's giving you favorable coverage. Or maybe, and hear me out, they, are, they don't want to see somebody elected in the U.S. who might escalate towards war with them. Maybe there's that. <laughs> now, by the way, one fact blows up this entire nonsense propaganda that they're pushing out here. You know who Russia favored in 2008 and 2012? Barack Obama. And it wasn't close. They much, much more preferred Obama. When you look at the Romney versus Obama debate, Obama, in no uncertain terms, attacked Mitt Romney because he said Mitt Romney's trying to pretend like we're still in the Cold War. The 1980s called. They want their foreign policy back. That's what he said. Obama did not want to arm rebel groups in Ukraine to fight Russia because he viewed that as a massive escalation and an offensive act on our part. Trump did arm the Ukrainian rebels who are fighting Russia, and he still gets accused of being a Russian puppet. That makes no sense. It makes no sense. But would Joanne Reed in 2008 and 2012 wag her finger at Obama and say, ooh, something weird is going on here. Something weird is going on here because why does Vladimir Putin prefer Barack Obama? Look at the favorable coverage Obama gets from Russia compared to Mitt Romney. Ooh. See, guys, this is what I'm trying to get across to you is McCarthyite smears, this is just a right-wing position. That's what this is. You're taking a right-wing position. Why? Because the underlying philosophy here is hawkishness. Is we have to be against them. We have to be against them. They're evil. They're wrong. They're bad. They're meddling. And we have to be against them come hell or high water. So you can't do real change. You can't be for candidates who are for peace like Tulsi or Bernie. You have to be for the ones who are more hawkish and more in favor of sanctions and more in favor of escalating with Russia. If they had the same philosophy in 2008 and 2012, they would have been fear-mongering about Obama being a Russian asset, and they would have been saying Romney's the serious one and McCain's the serious one. Because look, Romney and McCain got more negative coverage from Russia. That means by definition they're better, except they're not. I I agree with 2008 Obama and 2012 Obama. That's who I agree with. I agree with Bernie and Tulsi. That's who I agree with. I don't want to do sanctions. I don't want to escalate towards war. I want to go in the other direction. I wouldn't have armed rebel groups in Ukraine to fight Russia. By the way, many of those rebel groups have neo-Nazi ties, if not are flat-out neo-Nazis. So I know that's a politically incorrect thing to say, but it's true. It's true. So, but this is all they have, guys. They can't take on Bernie and Tulsi and the left in, on actual policy disagreements. So what do they do? McCarthyite smears. She really argues. 
She says regime change war a lot. That's terminology that Russia likes. <sighs> By the way, you wonder why MSNBC perpetually has the worst ratings among the three big cable news networks. Fox News is number one, CNN is number two, MSNBC is number three. And by the way, they're comfortable with being in that position. They are. They're like, yeah, okay, that's what we are. Except maybe if you ran a network that actually gave a shit about issues and actually, you know, fought for those left positions from a principled perspective, maybe you'd be, be, go up in the ratings. They've lied to themselves and said, well, since TV is more generational and it's older people who watch TV and we're more left, that's why we're not getting as many views because just not as many young people watch TV. If you had an actual vision at that network at MSNBC, you could overcome that bias, that generational problem. If MSNBC was run by real lefties, it can become the number one network. Everybody just conceded, like, oh, yeah, Fox is always going to be number one. Why? Why have you conceded that? Work harder. Have a better philosophy at MSNBC, and then maybe you can win. But when you push nonsense like this, it's no wonder you're doing so terrible in the ratings. I mean, what do you really believe? They believe in hawkishness. They believe in Cold War hysteria. And uh, as my friend Jimmy Dore says, this is why you get your news from YouTube. I hear a leaf blower outside, and it's driving me fucking crazy. <laughs> I, can't, I can't deal with leaf blowers, man. They piss me off so much. What's the point? Just leave your fucking leaves on the lawn. Who gives a shit? God damn it. All right, let's make fun of Stuart Varney. Stuart Varney of Fox Business Network weighed in on the state of the Democratic primary. And he gave us quite a laugh. In the last five months, Joe Biden's standing in the polls has gone south. I'm using the respected Monmouth poll. 32% support in June, 23% support in November. Now, not good. And getting worse by the day, Joe is easily rattled. Watch this.
fading Joe Biden, unelectable socialists, Warren and Sanders, extreme policy divisions, and here comes the $52 billion man. Wouldn't that be something? Trump versus Bloomberg in 2020? Now that would be the election of the century. No, it wouldn't. <laughs> it wouldn't even be close to that. It would be two oligarch billionaires going at it. And by the way, Trump would obliterate Mike Bloomberg. I have no doubt about that. Okay, this is a guy who does economic and political commentary on a regular basis, Stuart Varney. And he's saying Mike Bloomberg is a serious candidate. Based on what? <laughs> Based on what? You know what poll just came out? They asked Democratic voters, should, should he even run? Like, that was the question. Not, do you support him? The question was, should he even run? Only 19% said yes. Only 19%. That's not even do you support him. That's should he run. Only 19% said yes. So you know what he's trying to do, right? By the way, he's skipping the first four contests. What? In all seriousness, I think that's disrespectful to the people in Iowa and New Hampshire. I think it is. So he's jumping in on Super Tuesday. But he's skipping the first few contests. Why? Uh, He's a little late to the scene, and he knows he would tank there anyway, so he's not even going to try to get the votes of the people in that region. Way to show you really believe in democracy and think everybody should have a voice there, Mike Bloomberg. So he's skipping the first four contests, jumping in on Super Tuesday, and he just did, the other day, the biggest ad buy ever. The former record was from Barack Obama, $24 million at once in an ad buy. I think it was for the 2012 election. Bloomberg did $30 million. Now, that's all his own money, and he said, and he made a big deal of it, Oh, I'm not going to raise any money uh, from anybody. I'm, I'm going to self-finance my entire campaign. Mike, nobody was offering to give you money. <laughs> not a single person was like, oh, have my money, Mike Bloomberg. <laughs> nobody said that. So when he says, I'm, I'll self-finance it. Yeah, of course you're going to self-finance it because you got $52 billion. If you waste a billion dollars, you don't, it's nothing to you. So you're going to self-finance it, and you're trying to buy the election. The only reason you're taken seriously is because you're a billionaire, which, you know, gets to the point of Stuart Varney here. I need you guys to understand something. Part of being a billionaire, and Mike Bloomberg writes a lot of checks to a lot of issues, part of that is extreme power. So how can all these so-called journalists and reporters at all the main networks, how can they call him out? How can they be aggressive against him when they know – He's a potential future employer. You all know Bloomberg News is a thing. They have their own channel. They have their own outlet, print outlet. He's the owner of that. So are they more likely or less likely to call him out in vociferous terms, knowing that he's a potential future employer? Answer, of course they're less likely to call him out. Of course they are. There's a lot of people like Mike Bloomberg single-handedly funds a lot of Um, movement groups in this country. So on gun reform, for example, now I happen to agree with him on the issue of gun reform, but I have a principled position against money in politics, so I don't want to win on that issue because we have a bigger checkbook than the other side. I want to win on that issue because we convince people through debate and discourse that like, we actually have the open discussion and we come to the conclusion, hey, it's a good idea to do universal background checks and a couple other, uh, you know, regulatory motions here. No, he, he uh, finances some of the biggest gun reform groups. So what position are they in now? 
Now, a lot of the other Democratic candidates have the same positions as Bloomberg on gun reform. But these groups, there's a conflict of interest. They're more likely to say, oh, I support Bloomberg because he's paying, their, he's paying them. So he's, he is effectively trying to buy legitimacy. That's what he's doing here. And what a terrible system we have where you could just have a billionaire willy-nilly hop in and think he's the savior. By the way, I read a great article in The Atlantic earlier today, and it is devastating about the kind of ideology Mike Bloomberg has. I believe they called him the article paternalistic and coercive. That's exactly right, and authoritarian. Did you know that as mayor of New York, he banned um, the feeding of homeless people, the donating of food, to homeless shelters, the donating of bagels in particular to homeless shelters. Why? They said, oh, we, we don't have uh, the bureaucracy at the moment to test the salt level and, and the carbohydrate level of the bagels and everything. So we're just going to do a blanket ban of donating bagels from bagel stores to homeless shelters. Like at the end of the day, you know, you'll have, they donate the remainder. Bagels might be a little hard or whatever, but still, they're donating free bagels to a homeless shelter. He banned that. He said, no, you can't do that. This is, that's who Mike Bloomberg is, man. The dude, the, probably the number one thing he was known for as uh, mayor of New York is banning of the big gulp. He banned big gulps. Well, I, I don't think you should have that. That's a lot of soda. I'm against you having that much soda. So now I'm going to use the force of law to try to stop you from doing that. Who are you? <laughs> like, who are you? That's a, even like if your mom or dad tells you don't drink that. At a certain age, you have the right to be like, how about you piss off? I'll do what I want. <laughs> but he's a representative of the government, and he's going to tell you, don't do that. I don't like that. Stop that. What are you doing? Stop and frisk against the Fourth Amendment. Illegal, unconstitutional. Defended it his entire time in office. Perpetrated it his entire time in office. 99% of the time yields nothing and takes away the rights of black and brown people for the most overwhelmingly in the city. And he has the nerve now to pretend, oh, I'm sorry. You're only doing that because you want to be president. That's so obvious. You don't, like, you still believe in it. Of course you still believe in it. That's why you defended it your entire time in office. He's against an increase in the minimum wage. <laughs> the dude is running in a Democratic primary. He's not a Democrat. He used to be a Republican. Then he became an independent. Like seven and a half minutes ago, he became a Democrat. And he's just trying to buy his way in. And instead of Stuart Varney saying, hey, man, you're wildly out of lockstep with the Democratic base. What are you even doing? Look at the numbers of what the, uh, what the Democratic base believes. You're against everything that they're for. Instead of doing that, what does he do? Oh, very serious candidate. Falling Biden. Bloomberg will come in and say, This is a political commentator. Stuart Barney gets paid millions of dollars every year. This is his contribution. This is his uh, political commentary. Now, my guess is, I'm not sure he even believes what he's saying, that, oh, yeah, Bloomberg is a real threat. Based on what? There's no reason to believe that other than that he's a billionaire. Um, but I think part of what's flavoring his commentary here is he knows that he's a potential future employer. That's what I think. So say a couple kind words about Bloomberg, and then when the time comes, hey, maybe, maybe he hooks you up. And that's the problem. The same people who, are gonna, who scream all the time, oh, my God, oh my God, we need to care about the First Amendment and a free press. They didn't bat an eyelash when a billionaire who owns a multi-million, maybe multi-billion dollar media company hops into the race 
and um, and says, oh, they're, they're not going to cover me. They're not going to cover anybody else in the ring. So you're stopping an investigative news outlet from doing investigative reporting because you're running for office. Nobody even batted an eyelash. Nobody even was like, oh, that's a problem. Nope. Everybody in mainstream media is like, oh, that's totally cool. You want to talk about state media. Imagine in the inconceivable scenario of Bloomberg wins. What happens to Bloomberg News then? Does it just continue existing? And you have a literal, like, state media outlet, <laughs> unitary executive media outlet, presidential media outlet? Unbelievably gross. And, uh, of course, Fox is going to take him seriously. All right, let's do one more, and then we'll take a break. Not everything in the world is bad. Benjamin Netanyahu was just indicted on corruption charges. Here are some of the details of that. Prime Minister indicted while serving in office. The Attorney General has announced his final decision to indict Netanyahu on three charges of corruption. But the current political stalemate with neither major party able to form a coalition government, it's not exactly clear what happens next. CNN's Oren Lieberman reports from Jerusalem. Benjamin Netanyahu suffered his biggest blow as Prime Minister. This one, not political, but legal. The first sitting Prime Minister to face criminal indictment in Israel's history. Netanyahu was defiant. This evening, we are witnessing a governmental coup attempt against a prime minister by false libel and with a tenacious and contaminated investigation process. The 70-year-old leader has spent years fighting against this very moment, proclaiming his innocence. Ever since the criminal investigations were made public nearly three years ago, Netanyahu has railed against them. A media-fueled witch hunt, he said, an attempt to topple him through the justice system when they couldn't beat him at the polls. The time has come to investigate the investigators. It is time to investigate the prosecution that approves these contaminated investigations. Israel's longest-serving prime minister faces charges in three cases. In case 4000, prosecutors say Netanyahu advanced regulatory benefits for his friend, a multimillionaire businessman. Those benefits were worth hundreds of millions of dollars. In exchange, prosecutors say Netanyahu received favorable news coverage from a news site owned by that businessman. In this case, Netanyahu faces the more serious charge of bribery, as well as the charge of fraud and breach of trust. In case 2000, prosecutors say Netanyahu was working on an arrangement with the owner of one of Israel's largest papers, Yediot Achronot. Netanyahu sought more favorable news coverage in exchange for limiting the circulation of the paper's rival. Netanyahu faces a charge of fraud and breach of trust in this case. Finally, in case 1000, prosecutors say Netanyahu received valuable gifts, such as cigars and champagne from overseas businessmen, gifts they say a public servant shouldn't have received. Here, Netanyahu also faces a charge of fraud and breach of trust. Attorney General Avichai Mendelblitz called it a very sad day for Israel, but rejected any idea that this was a political decision against the Prime Minister. 
This is not an issue of right or left. It's not a matter of politics. This is a duty that everyone has to obey. This is my duty towards the public, that everyone will live in a state where any accusation of illegality is going to be checked and investigated. Netanyahu's rival, former IDF chief of staff Benny Gantz, called on him to step down. He said of Netanyahu, he is well aware that the grave and complex challenges facing the state of Israel, both in terms of security and in the societal and economic arenas, require a prime minister able to invest his full time, energy, and attention. Netanyahu failed to form a government twice. First, after April's elections, and then again after September's elections. For months now, Israel has been stuck in political deadlock. That deadlock now protects Netanyahu. As long as no one can form a government, he remains prime minister. Or Lieberman, CNN, Jerusalem. Wow. Wow. Fascinating. Um, I have no idea how this is going to unfold. I have no idea what's going to happen. If there's another election, I don't know what's going to happen. And what you see is a, a Trumpian flair in his response to this. The Trumpian flair is it's a hoax, it's a witch hunt, and now it's time to investigate the investigators. And here's the thing, man. That might work. Like, th- like that's the counter-argument, because it actually is true that sometimes, you know, sometimes the corrupt accuse the uncorrupted of being the corrupt. So if he can, and if he can convince people of that, then who knows what's going to happen. But, you know, sometimes the people who are accused of being corrupt indeed are corrupt. And in the case of Benjamin Netanyahu, I have no doubt he's probably guilty. But, by the way, it also should be noted, man, it's quite telling that this is what they take him down on. In other words, uh, when they did, what what was it called, Operation Protective Edge, I think, in 2014, where they killed 80% civilians in Gaza, including 500 children, they didn't say, oh, well, obviously, come on, man, war crimes, we're going to take you down. No. (laughs) They They went the route of corruption. But here's the thing. Here's the thing, though. That is, like, legit, like, Going after them for corruption, I think, is perfectly fair game, and it's poignant, and it's powerful. I wish that the Democrats um, knew how to go after Trump in a way that's similar to as poignant it is when they go after Netanyahu, because it's tough to get that stain off of you, especially because those, like, it sounds legit like the criticism sound because it sounds like the kind of corruption that's par for the course that they wouldn't bat an eyelash at and they would just do casually well yeah if if people ever get serious about governing and about running a country and about strategy that's the one of the first things you go after is no that shouldn't be allowed no so but in the case of the democrats i feel like they didn't use the right argument against trump as you guys know i've gone over it a thousand times i won't go over it again but the cliff notes version of it is they're saying, oh, my God, he tried to get dirt on Joe Biden from the Ukrainian prime minister or president, whatever it is. How, how dare he? How could he? Um, when, you know, my argument is you should have used a corruption argument, similar to like they use against Netanyahu with um, an emoluments violation and aiding a Saudi genocide. You got a, a corruption and genocide in the same scandal when, when it's taking hundreds of thousands from the Saudi government and then giving them a multi-billion dollar weapons deal and helping them facilitate a genocide in Yemen. It's all there, but they didn't use that argument. So I feel like when Trump counters with investigate the investigators, this is a witch hunt, this is a hoax, 
I feel like Trump, in the long run, might actually win out that argument, which is terrifying, of course. In the case of Netanyahu, I'm not as confident Netanyahu can weather the storm because I don't know Israeli politics as well as I know American politics. And I feel like what they're going after Netanyahu for is a stronger argument than what the Democrats are going after Trump for. But there's been reports, by the way, that Donald Trump has backed off of his like, overwhelming support of Netanyahu, particularly because he sees it like the legal troubles he's in and he thinks that Netanyahu's going down. So he's like distanced himself because, you know, Trump, if there's anything he respects the most, it's like winners. And if if at any point Netanyahu loses this and doesn't become a winner, becomes a loser, then Trump is going to be like, who? Netanyahu? I don't know what y'all talking about. (laughs) So um, you do see parallels between what's happening in Israel and what's happening in the U.S. right now. And it does feel like, particularly in the case of Israel, they're in this weird, untested gray zone where, like, who knows what happens next? He's protected by the gridlock that they have there because nobody can form a government. Nobody can form a coalition government. And so, I mean, I guess the next step would be elections again, and then I don't know what's going to happen in the elections. Is it possible he gets destroyed? Yes. But is it possible he wins? Yes. (laughs) All that's possible. And it all depends on how much people believe his counter-argument about, no, 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 I'm not the corrupt one. They're the corrupt one. It's a witch hunt. It's a hoax. You know, investigate the investigators. They're, they're the fake news. Like, seriously Trumpian in his response here. And what we've learned from recent history is oftentimes that works, man. Oftentimes that works. But in the case of Netanyahu, it's gone a step further. He was officially indicted on these corruption charges. And, you know, in a world that made sense, he would be going down. So there's still a chance he's going down. But it's not guaranteed yet. But this is a step in the direction of, um, in the proper direction of actually getting rid of the scourge that is Netanyahu, although who knows if his replacement will be reasonable or who knows if his replacement will do anything to facilitate peace with the Palestinians because there's a history of the exact opposite from that government. Okay. Let's take a break. When we come back, I, uh, I got Andrew Yang for you. The media is treating him like garbage, and he's aware of it, and he's not standing for it anymore. So I give him a lot of credit with how he fought back. I'll play that clip for you. We'll talk about that and much more. Stay right there.
<laughs> All right, we're back. I am. I'm her, y'all. I am her. Okay. Um. <clears throat> I just want to show you guys something real quick. My mom got me some stuff, and uh, it's like, it made my year, if I'm being honest with you. This is a weird segment to do with Andrew Yang in the background. Andrew, sorry. This is no shade towards you, man. You just happened to be up on the screen as I wanted to share this. That, ladies and gentlemen, is a Bernie Sanders action figure. I don't know how well you can see it. Yeah, buddy. So, um, I like how it says ages three plus. <laughs> Imagine a four-year-old like, Mom, give me my Bernie Sanders action figure. <laughs> That's not a thing. But anyway, um, I love the fact that, so she got this for me, I want to say like a month or two ago. And, um, when she got it, she told my uncle, who was with her, I think, um, like, I don't know if he wants this. Or, I don't know if it was my uncle who was there. But anyway, some family member, she was like, I don't know if he wants this. I'm not sure I'm going to buy this. She was like 50-50 on it. She was at some, like, I don't know. She was in upstate New York at some kind of store, obviously. And she was like, I don't know. She was 50-50 on it. She decided to buy it. When she told me about it afterwards, she was like, She's like, oh, I got you something. I don't, I'm not sure you're going to like it, you know, but I got, I, fi- I figured I'd get you this Bernie Sanders, like, action figure thing. And when I saw it, I was like, oh, shoot. <laughs> and I was really excited. And one of the reasons why I was excited about it is not just because it's pretty cool and it's a Bernie Sanders action figure, but also because, look at that. I don't know if you could read that. Yeah, it looks like the light is kind of dra- drowning it out. But you, it says 2016 over here. I don't know how well you could see that. It says 2016. Um, so this is from his first run. So, you know, you'll wonder if he wins, which is possible, very possible that that happens. Um, I could imagine when I'm like an 80 year old dude, this could be worth quite a bit of money. Um, but not that that's why it's cool. I mean, it's cool because I don't even think I'd sell it at any point anyway. I just think it's a cool thing to have. You know, I'm a sucker for, like, collectible stuff. I think that's why when I was young I loved Pokemon because I would get those, you know, the, the Pokemon cards. And I still have the thing. I still have, like, the, my whole collection of them. And to this day I love the idea of, like, collecting stuff, whatever it might be. And the funny thing is I don't have many things that I collect, even though I like the idea of collecting stuff. All I have is from when I was a kid the Pokemon cards, and that's pretty much it. <laughs> Um, but yeah, imagine I do like a whole, <clears throat> I mean, how dorky would that be to have like a whole set of different political people, action figures, but then again, like who the hell would want like, I don't know, an Amy Klobuchar doll. <laughs> they definitely don't even make that. And if they do make that, oh my God, that's just terrible. But obviously the Bernie one is cool. And then the other thing I wanted to show everybody you're going to like this one. I actually wore this. I think I wore this at, uh, was it Politicon or TYT or something? Love that shirt. Love it. 
Um, I like how I don't know if it, if they're trying to make a play on the idea that you know they say like <laughs> Bernie Sanders fairy dust, you know unicorns and rainbows, and it's like uh, actually, yeah, unicorns and rainbows, awesome. <laughs> What's wrong with unicorns and rainbows? Nothing's wrong with unicorns and rainbows. They're actually really cool. Um, and of course, the stuff he's fighting for is not unicorns and rainbows. It is you know stuff that the rest of the developed world has, and it's actually the common sense position. But I digress from that. And then the final one I'll show you. I actually have one other Bernie Sanders shirt as well. Expect me to wear some of these on the show, by the way. But outside of this one, I have another one that's a Bernie Sanders shirt, but I don't have it with me at the moment. Look at this. Look at that. <laughs> that is awesome. Yes to Bernie, no to Trump. So, yeah. Look at that. I cannot wait to wear these shirts, and I'm still dorking out over the uh, the action figure that my mom got me. So anyway, wanted to share that with you guys. Thought you'd find it pretty cool. Okay, next, <clears throat> Andrew Yang. Got to give him a lot of credit on this one, man. Got to give him a lot of credit on this one. Andrew Yang decided to take on MSNBC over their repeated snubs of him. He did this while on CNN. Take a look. remiss if I did not mention you were also invited on MSNBC this weekend and you turned down that invitation and instead took to Twitter to slam the network a decision that could be seen as risky during a Democratic primary. Uh, We're showing one of those tweets here which reads in part was asked to appear on MSNBC this weekend and told them that I'd be happy to after they apologize on air. What exactly do you want an apology for? Well on a Americans tuned in to the debate earlier this week, and they saw that I got called on less than any other candidate, including candidates that I'm polling higher than, and the questions I did get had virtually nothing to do with the core ideas of my campaign. And if this were an isolated incident, that would be one thing, but if you go back over the last number of months, MSNBC has literally omitted me from over a dozen fundraising and polling graphics, which... It's not about me. It's about the 300,000-plus Americans who've donated to and support my campaign and the millions of Americans who know we need to rewrite the rules of the 21st century economy to work for us. Think about those people donating $10, $20 of their hard-earned money to put a candidate on the stage and then have MSNBC virtually ignore me for 32 minutes or when they tune into MSNBC to see how we're doing in the polls, it's like I don't exist. And you can go through the records, you can see they've done it to me over and over again. And I'm not the kind of guy who takes offense easily, but at this point you have to call it like you see it. Do you think there's a specific reason you're not getting the coverage you feel is fair on a network so popular with the left? It's a bit of a mystery to me, Anna, and I hope that when they come clean and acknowledge that they have been 
uh, suppressing and ignoring me and my campaign for months. Maybe they'll actually share with us what the rationale is. All I know is that I'm fighting for the American people. I'm here in Iowa. There are, uh, I'm going to say hundreds, I actually lost track, hundreds of Iowans right behind me, as you can see, who know we need to actually work on solving the problems that got Donald Trump elected. I have no idea why MSNBC does not want to have this conversation. I do. I do. It's because you're an outsider. That's why. They do not like outsiders. They do not respect outsiders. They think you need to learn your place and know your place. And um, they don't like the idea that you're in this race and you're shaking it up. You're an entrepreneur who came out of left field who's running on some bold ideas like universal basic income and decriminalizing all drugs. Um, They don't respect you and they don't like you. It's a... It's a system that they have over there where it's an establishment bias. It's a pro-corporate Democrat bias. I wouldn't say you're a corporate Democrat, and you're certainly not part of the establishment. So that's why. The people who get uh, the the most negative coverage are Bernie Sanders, Tulsi Gabbard, and you. And they have made a, a concerted effort to ignore you. And he's right that they will take... He's, polar high, he's polling higher than a lot of establishment candidates, and they will literally not put his face on screen with how high he's polling. They'll take somebody who's polling lower than him and put them on the screen. They've done this over and over. It is 100% a decision that has come down from either the producer of the show or even higher up in the network. Um, they will put, like, Cory Booker, who's polling way below him, Or now Kamala Harris, in many polls, is polling lower than Andrew Yang, which, by the way, I love that fact. But they will put up Corey, they will put up Kamala, because in their minds, they think, oh, well, these are the serious candidates. Why? Why do you think you're in any position to determine who isn't, isn't serious above the will of the voters? If Andrew Yang's polling higher than Kamala Harris and Cory Booker, Andrew Yang is polling higher than them. So who are you to say, I don't care what the voters want, I don't care what the people think, I think in my little comfy circle in Washington, D.C. or New York City, that, that he's unserious, so I will not include him in the polls. Listen, I am very unsympathetic towards candidates who don't know why they're running, who, if you ask them, what's the main reason you're in this race, you'll get... I am very sympathetic towards people who do know exactly why they're running. And that's one of the reasons why I'm sympathetic towards Yang, is agree or disagree with him. He's like, universal basic income. That's my thing. That's my number one thing. I do have other positions on other issues, but it's my main thing is why I'm running in the case of Tulsi Gabbard and regime change wars. That's why I'm running. That's my main thing. In the case of Bernie Sanders, it's Medicare for all. Medicare for all, and then obviously, you know, sprinkle in strong anti-corruption message and an and a income inequality, fixing income and wealth inequality message. I know exactly why these people are running. It is not a mystery, okay? And it just so happens that those candidates who are the most outsider, anti-establishment candidates, anti-corporate candidates, they get treated the worst. Now, people who are running on their own ego and narcissism, Mayor Pete, Kamala Harris, (laughs) many of the others, they're the ones who get the positive coverage. So, listen, I don't think it's nefarious I just think that they are utterly convinced in their bubble in Washington, D.C. and New York that he's, he's not serious. 
I know the serious candidates. The serious candidates are the, the ones who they've already preordained. Beto was serious. But would you look at that? Beto's out. And the list goes on and on. Kamala Harris is serious, plummeted in the polls. Um, Joe Biden, despite his 4,321 gaps and the fact that he can't even remember where he is sometimes, very, very serious, most electable candidate. Here's the problem with mainstream media. They like to push a narrative as they pretend like they're just calling balls and strikes. And that's what drives me crazy. No, you're pushing a narrative. You have beliefs, you have an ideology, and that, that messes up your coverage. That influences your coverage massively. But they pretend like, no, 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 we're just keeping it real over here. No, if you were keeping it real, you have Andrew Yang on the screen when he's polling higher than other people who you do have on the screen and you excluded him. That's keeping it real. Keeping it real is, wow, this guy's resonating with a lot of people. I wonder why it is. Let's look into that. That's keeping it real. They're not doing that. They're not doing it. Keeping it real is, well, listen, Bernie Sanders might be in second place in polling, but he's probably the front runner because all these other metrics point in the direction of Bernie Sanders being the front runner. Look at how many individual donors he has, for example. Look at um, the grassroots ground game, for example. All these metrics he's leading, but no. He's another one of the he-who-shall-not-be-named candidates. They would literally put in a poll, Buttigieg is a strong fourth, before they put Bernie Sanders is in second. So I like that Andrew Yang is doing this because it's not going to resolve itself. It's not going to resolve itself. What, you think they're going to, like, all of a sudden start treating him kindly? No, they're not going to do that. So since they're not going to do that, and by the way, there's no appeasing of smear merchants. They're going to smear no matter what you say, no matter what you do. What do you do? Take them on. Head on. Call them out directly hey, this is what you're doing, and this is not okay. Do that. If you do that, then you also make headlines. Now, some of them are going to try to portray Andrew Yang as, like, unhinged, and I just saw some headlines where they said, took the suppressed line out and put it in there, Andrew Yang, I'm being suppressed by by the media or whatever it might be. But, but, I actually think that he will win this argument out in the long run, for sure. Because it's true, and truth is always a defense. And so I like what Yang is doing here. I wish that uh, Bernie would hop on it as well because it's, uh, it's the correct strategy. You've got to understand, guys, when Donald Trump won the White House, part of how he won, and this is a really important point, he ran against the media and he ran against the Republican establishment. He was running in a Republican primary. He ran against the Republican establishment, and he won. He ran against the media, and he won. It turns out all of these institutions that we're told are so glorious, oh, our institutions that are norms, yes. All those things, people hate them, hate them. They hate the Democratic establishment. They hate the Republican establishment. They hate the media. Media trust is at an all-time low. Gee, I wonder why. So running against them is actually really, really popular. Now, they are going to smear you. They are going to try to portray you as unhinged. They are going to try to act like you're Trumpian, but that doesn't matter. You're winning, you're winning the hearts and minds of the voters, of the people. So go get the hearts and minds of the voters, of the people. One of the ways to do that is to accurately call out the media and the establishment. So uh, props to Andrew Yang here. I loved his response, and uh, I'd like to see some of this as well from the Bernie campaign.
Okay, Deval Patrick. Deval Patrick, his campaign is off to an amazing start. He's one of the, you know, the late entries into the race, former governor of Massachusetts, also massive, massive, massive corporate sellout, worked for Bain Capital, uh, Mitt Romney's vulture capitalism company. Um, he was a fixer for a lot of uh, big corporations where if there were racial issues at those corporations, he would swoop in and do his best to try to rehabilitate the image of uh, terrible companies that do terrible things. Um, so hops in the race late. Already it's like, wow, why on earth would you do that? You're going to get your ass handed to you on a silver platter. But nonetheless, he did it. You know, he couldn't help himself. Some people are saying, oh, my God, this is like a very – this is a strategy from the establishment to split the vote more, to get to a brokered convention, to steal it from Bernie and all that stuff. No, I disagree on that point. You want to know why? You are massively, massively overestimating their intelligence. They're not that smart. The establishment is not that smart. They're actually really stupid. They lost to Trump. The Democratic establishment lost to Donald Trump. It turns out the more accurate reflection of reality is turn the Benny Hill music on and look at what they're doing, and it, it works that way. That, that music fits them perfectly because they just bungle one thing after another thing after another thing. And so the idea here is, and I'm not kidding about this, oh, my God, Biden might not last. The next centrists that we're most comfortable with, who we'd be okay with if Biden doesn't last, is Mayor Pete and Amy Klobuchar. Mayor Pete's a mayor from South Bend, Indiana. Amy Klobuchar is Amy Klobuchar, and she's got, you know, the personality of a dead fish. So we need, we need, to, we need more insurance policies. So who's your insurance policy? Deval Patrick hops in. And the Obama people behind the scenes are, you know, trying to pump him up a little bit. So, guys, they're serious. They think, like, he could win. And they want him to become a serious contender. So he hops in the race at this late date, delusional that he thinks he's going to have a shot and take off. And um, the campaign's already off to a great start. Look at this tweet from CNN. Annie Greyer says, Governor Deval Patrick was supposed to have an event at Morehouse College tonight. By the way, that's a historically black college. Um, an organizer with the college who planned the event, told CNN that Patrick canceled the event when he arrived and learned that he would not have an audience. Note, two people came, not pictured. What are you doing, man? <laughs> what are you doing? This reminds me of the Martin O'Malley story. We covered the Martin. Remember when Martin O'Malley was running in 2016 and his campaign just wasn't taken off? Him and Lincoln Chafee, they went nowhere. And Jim Webb, who casually spoke about killing a guy on stage at a debate. But their campaigns weren't going anywhere. But poor Martin O'Malley kept trudging forward. He held an event in, uh, I think it was Iowa, although I could be wrong. One person showed up to the event. Now, to be fair to Martin O'Malley, it was snowing outside. And people were like, I don't want to get stuck in the snow and all that stuff. So one person showed up. That was a big story. We covered it. We made fun of it. They don't have that same excuse. <laughs> Deval Patrick doesn't have that excuse. Nobody showed up to your event, bro. Two people showed up to your event. How's the campaign going, fam? <laughs> the first article I've seen on Deval Patrick, the first story I've seen is this. 
The second story is The Hill tweeted a clip. He went on, like, CNN's Van Jones show or whatever. Uh, Deval Patrick did. And he said, uh, say a prayer for our republic. I'm absolutely floored at the fact that so many Democratic politicians are running like it's 1992. They're totally out of touch with the times, man. But I guess that's what happens when you're, you know, buddy-buddy with corporate America for decades. Like, how do you not know that that's not a thing anymore, that, like, you can't run on, like, I'm a religious man, and I'm a good man. They're proper Republicans. That's not, nobody's going to look at that and go, well, he really swayed me. It's a totally different political era. All the things that used to be political liabilities are now political, political assets. Having no filter. Shooting from the hip. Being punchy and to the point. Not looking professional. Looking the opposite of professional. Donald Trump is president and Bernie Sanders is one of the front runners in the race. Obviously, obvious professionalism and you know, scripted talking points and religion in the public square. It's not, it's not a thing, man. Oh my God. It probably one of the things I'm most looking forward to moving forward is watching Mike Bloomberg just stagnate and stall out and go nowhere and watching Deval Patrick go absolutely nowhere. And then at some point have to drop out. a little bit here, but it perfectly makes sense in the context of the story. Um, and, and hey, we got a, a thousand witnesses. When we went to Politicon, Corn and I, it was in Nashville, Tennessee this year, we did a meet and greet. Now, I told them beforehand, listen, I'm going to need a lot of time because there's probably going to be a decent sized line. And I'm doing that based off the previous year's Politicon where there were a lot of people who were there for us. So anyway, they set it up for, an, uh, I think, an hour and a half. We go in there, we're taking pictures. Guys, I don't know the exact number, so I don't want to give an exact number, but it, it was definitely over 1,000 people, definitely over 1,000 people. And the line for us, myself and Corin, who was there with me, it, goes, it went out around a bus they had in the middle of the freaking room and then back and maybe like literally out the door. It was – I was – floored by it. And I was flattered and humbled by it, by the way. Well, obviously I'm not too humble because I'm bragging about it as we speak. <laughs> but I was like, whoa, that's all for us? You know who they brought out next to me? Dude who's running for president. Bill Weld. He's running in the Republican primary. Last election, he was Gary Johnson's VP. Gary Johnson was the Libertarian Party candidate. Bill Weld was Gary Johnson's VP. Ran for president. Obviously, they didn't do too well. Um, this time around, Bill Weld's like, I'm going to primary Trump. He's trying to run on, like, the, the old-school Republican brand. He's trying to be, like, you know, old-school professional-type Republican who's still for all the same policies as Trump. That's the sense I get. He goes out there. He had, like, nobody on his line. <laughs> we, we're a YouTube show, okay? We had... So many people he had next to nobody. We dwarfed his line. I've never been like 
more shocked in my life, and I've also never been more amazed at the hubris of a guy like Bill Weld who's running for president despite the fact he has less than no chance. And that's what I see when I look at Deval Patrick. Like, his self-perception is so out of lockstep with the reality of who he is and what he's done. He thinks he's got to get to this earth. He thinks, especially, he thinks he's got a real shot here. Nobody even showed up. By the way, Bernie had a, an event at Morehouse the day after. It was jam-packed. There were awesome videos coming out of that event. And he got an amazing ovation at Morehouse College. So, um, anyway, Deval Patrick is Bill Weld. And uh, he's running on his own ego, and he's going to go nowhere. And it's kind of embarrassing. And quite literally, literally, well, even though I literally can't do it because I'm not 35 yet, and you have to be 35 to be president, but if I announced a presidential run in one day without doing anything, I would, like, get, what, 400 times the amount of support as Deval Patrick? And uh, how sad is that? (laughs) I mean, that's so sad. And by the way, the mainstream media wouldn't talk about me at all if I did that. But for him, they're going to talk about him a lot, even though he has, like, next to no support. It just shows the disconnect, man. It shows the disconnect from reality among him and among the media and um, I can't get enough of these stories. I want to see so many more of these. I really do. I want to hear about all, like, the sad turnout stories. By the way, even Joe Biden, even though he's leading in a lot of polls, his turnout is apparently not great. Not nearly as bad as Deval Patrick, don't get me wrong. But Joe Biden will do events in New Hampshire and Iowa, and he'll fill, like, a classroom. Bernie Sanders is getting way more than that. Even Elizabeth Warren is getting way more than that. So... I mean, it says something, it says something, that candidates who rep a particular ideology, they just flail and go nowhere. Okay, next. So here we go again. Uh, we knew that this was going to happen when Jenk Uger announced a congressional run, but it has begun. They are really, really, really diving headfirst into relentless smears. There's a concerted effort to do a smear campaign against Jenk Uger um, because he's now campaigning for the 25th District of California to be their congressperson. So let's take a look at one of the worst articles doing this, even though there are many doing this. This is from the establishment outlet, The Daily Beast. They say, Dems fear carpetbagger Jenk Uger will lose them California seat. The firebrand Young Turks co-founder is running for former Representative Katie Hill seat, and his controversial reputation is sending shivers through Democrats. Uger's opponents could draw on his two decades of controversial statements. In a 2000 blog post, for example, Uger called women flawed while complaining about his sex life. Quote, it seems like there is a sea of tits here, and I'm drinking in tiny droplets, Uger wrote, adding later um, in the post, obviously the genes of women are flawed. They are poorly designed creatures who do not want to have sex nearly as often as needed for the human race to get along peaceably and fruitfully. All right, let me pause there. He's 
the year's 2000. He lives in Miami, and he's writing about how sad it is that he can't get laid. And so he says, obviously, jokingly, well, obviously the problem is the genes of women are flawed because they don't want to sleep with me. This is much ado about nothing. Now, I mean, I guess if you're a Puritan and you say, hey, I don't want anybody to discuss sex ever for any reason, fine. But he's not a Puritan. And his whole job as, at the time, a writer, but also a radio host and a political commentator, his whole job is to keep it real and shoot from the hip and talk off the cuff. And that's what he does. So, see, this is, guys, this is what they're going to do. And you're going to notice a theme here. Every single thing they say, none of it's policy related. None of it. All of it is like, PC outrage, go, be offended. Are you offended? Are you offended? Are you offended? Are you offended? And it's, all, it's smear attempts at Satan. Obviously, he hates women. Look at what he said here. He's poking fun at himself for not being able to get laid. <laughs> That's what that is. Now, you don't have to like that line. You don't have to like that he wrote it. But to try to use that to say, and this, again, is the implication, well, he's a misogynist and he's not for women and helping them on the issues they care most about. That is fundamentally not true. Every woman who has ever worked with him has said, in no uncertain terms, he's incredibly respectful, and he, he believes in them, and he helps them out. Anna wrote a beautiful thing on, on Twitter the other day talking about how nobody believed in me, Jenk believed in me, and, and I've never had a single issue with him over all the times, the, the years I've worked with him. And obviously on policy issues, he's for you know, all the positions that, are the strongest position on women's issues, Jenk is already there. And I have no doubt that he'd fight harder for that than any of the other people running. But what do they do? PC outrage. Polit- oh, you said something politically incorrect. Guilty. He said something politically incorrect. You know, in a different time, maybe your offense campaign might actually land. But in today's day and age, I'm telling you guys, man, people have had enough of this. They've had enough of this nonsense. They're, it could backfire on them. Let's continue. In another post, Uger laid out his rules for dating, which included third date advice to women, uh, to women like, if I haven't felt your tits by then, things are not about to last much longer. In a 2004 blog post, Young Church co-founder David Kohler described underage girls he and Uger met as whores in training. The blog posts have caused Uger trouble before. In 2017, Justice Democrats a progressive group Uger co-founded cut ties with him and Kohler, and Kohler over the blog post. Uger has apologized for his earlier writings, telling the rap that they were written when he was a different guy, but many of his other controversial remarks occurred more recently and are captured on video in Young Church broadcast. Several of the remarks are demeaning to women, a sensitive issue in the district after the nude photographs helped force Hill's resignation. Uger detractors, for example, have highlighted a 2012 Young Turks clip where Uger and other Young Turks staffers discussed a mother-daughter porn duo. Uger quizzed his co-hosts on whether they would have sex with both women at once, leaving aside concerns about incest. Oh, God. Look at, look at what they're trying to go after him with. Uger said that he certainly would have sex with the mother and daughter together if given the opportunity. Quote, if I was single, no question, I would do it, Uger said. Uger's foes in the district have also highlighted past remarks about bisexual women. In 2012, for example, Uger said 
he had never been attracted to Sex and the City actress Cynthia Nixon until she came out as bisexual. Quote, when I found out she was bisexual, I thought, Cynthia Nixon, Uger said, raising his voice in approval. All of a sudden, Cynthia Nixon. In another broadcast on declining rates of sexual activity in Japan, Uger said he would travel to Japan to take advantage of the opportunity if he were still single. Quote, Japan is butter, I'm, I'm a hot knife, Uger said, waving his hands to illustrate the metaphorical knife. I'd run through those girls. Uger has also criticized Orthodox Jews and religiously conservative Muslims, saying that they're wasting their lives and teaching their children things that are, quote, Looney Tunes. Uger, a Turkish-American, has also been skeptical in the past of the Armenian Genocide. While Uger now acknowledges that it happened, his previous stance could be another stumbling block for him in the district, according to Castleberry. Quote, we have a significant Armenian population in Southern California. It's one of our largest minorities, said Castleberry, the president of the Simi Valley Democratic Club. Uh, it's really troubling he didn't consider that. Uger opponents like Castleberry have also highlighted his criticism of Barack Obama, a favorite of many Democratic voters during the 2012 presidential race. Uger, a frequent critic of establishment Democrats, complained that Obama wasn't liberal enough. Quote, he's conservative in his bones, so I've got no love for Obama whatsoever, Uger said. Guys, they gave away the game there at the end. They gave away the little game that they're playing at the end there. They're trying to say, oh, you're going to run as a Democrat? And you said mean things about Barack Obama? How could you? This is an establishment protection racket. That's what it is. Just so everybody knows, it wasn't like, like, oh, it was organic and they stumbled upon all these things that they were offended by that Jenks said over the years. No, let me explain to you the way politics work. The second he announced, there was opposition research going on from the Democratic establishment and from the media. And what they do is they feed it to their buddies in mainstream media and they say, here, Write a hatchet job on Jank Uger. You think they don't know that this is a hatchet job? They know that it's a hatchet job. They know that um, they're just trying to shiv his campaign in the side and make sure it goes nowhere. They know that that's what they're doing. They don't care. Because this is, this is how they play politics. They play dirty, dirty, low-blow politics. And that's exactly what this is. But they messed up at the end there because they gave away the game. The game is, oh, my God, he said Barack Obama wasn't left enough. Oh, my God, Jenk Uger would be way to the left of Barack Obama. And he would not be compromising. He would not work with the Nancy Pelosi's and the Chuck Schumer's. He would not kowtow. He would not fall in line. He would not do the bidding of corporate America. He would not represent a new democratic, corporatist, centrist ideology. And that's the problem. And that's the root of all this. They don't agree with him ideologically and philosophically. But instead of saying, hey, man, here's why Cenk Uger's wrong with his position on Medicare for All. Here's why he's wrong with his position on free college. Here's why he's wrong with his position on a living wage. Here's why he's wrong when he says he wants to end the wars. Instead of doing that, because they would lose those arguments across the board, what do they do? Oh, you said that politically incorrect mean things, good sir. Yes? Well, listen, man. Hopefully, it doesn't work. Now, politics is dirty, and sometimes it ends up working. But I hope that people are smart enough to see through this nonsense. Because it is telling that the stuff that they have to go to are basically politically incorrect stuff he said over the year. 
over the years. So can you say, hey, man, I don't like the fact that a dude is talking about sex so openly and talking about women that he'd like to sleep with? You don't have to like that. But is that something that disqualifies one to do the job of representing a district and fighting for the policy positions that they believe in deeply? No, of course not. Of course not. Um, is criticizing Barack Obama from the left something that should disqualify you? No, of course not. If anything, that should be an asset. That should be something people look at favorably. Oh, he looks at all the shortcomings of Barack Obama and says, those are shortcomings. Let's not do that. Let's go in the other direction. So um, I honestly, at this point, I think that this stuff that they do against him is embarrassing. And the advice that I would give to Jenk is, you have to go after the media because they really are dishonest. They are dishonest, and they are going to try to portray you in the most negative light imaginable. I mean, does anybody really think that, that this article accurately sums up the stuff that Jank Uger is in favor of and the stuff that he would fight for? Does anybody think that? No. Even the people who are writing it don't think that. Even the establishment Democrats who did the oppo research don't think that. Um, but they run with it anyway because this is their only hope. This is a Hail Mary pass. How are we going to beat him? I don't know. Let's find uh, outrageous things he said in the past and use them against him and um, hope that people feel offended and say, I cannot bring myself to vote for him. That's their play. That's all they have. But I think what Jenk is going to do is stick to the issues, you know, call out the media when they're doing nonsense like this, stick to a strong populist anti-corruption message, and hopefully it works. Again, my only fear for the district is I don't know. My gut reaction is to think that any district around L.A. is not going to be a middle to lower income district. And for Jenk to win and for any populist candidate to win, it needs to be a middle to lower income district. The only places around the country where populism doesn't work and where strong anti-corruption, anti-establishment message doesn't work are high income districts. And, you know, I don't know the specifics of his district, but... You know, if it is bordering on that higher end, then he's in trouble. But, you know, do recognize what's going on here. This is a smear campaign. They're going to continue to smear him. They're not going to stop. And they're going to hope that you don't recognize that everything they laid out there does not in any way, shape, or form reflect on his policy beliefs and, and what he fights for now. By the way, some of the stuff he actually apologized for. Some of the stuff he's apologized for that he said. Other stuff he didn't, but some stuff he apologized for. Um, but again, they don't care, and that's the nature of a smear. It's not about, here's a thing I actually disagree with you on, now please respond. The whole point of the smear is, I don't care what you say, I'm just going to tar your name and do as much as I can to uh, you know, throw you under the bus here. And that's what they're doing. So I wish him well, and I hope he goes on the offense, and I hope that this stuff don't, doesn't work. And I hope everybody sees through it for what it is, a transparent effort to kneecap somebody who's a real lefty who's going to fight for the people. And this is what disincentivizes good people from getting involved in politics. I'm sure there's a lot of people, I'm sure a lot of you guys out there who watch this show, you might want to get involved in politics, but then you think, oh, God, I tweeted something in 2013 that, oh, that... I I didn't say the right thing, or I was too edgy, or whatever it might be. This is why I've always been, like, really outspoken on the side of free speech and free expression, and I've come out strongly against political correctness, 
is because exactly of stuff like this. I saw it from a mile away that this is what they're going to do. When good people try to get involved in politics to make a change for the better, to get us Medicare for all, to get us free college, to get us a living wage, to get us a Green New Deal, to end the wars, to legalize marijuana, to free the nonviolent drug offenders. When good people try to get into politics to make real change, the number one play they will use against us is you haven't always been enlightened and for good policy positions. You've said a lot of outrageous bad stuff. Would you look at that? Nobody should take you seriously because look at, look at the lack of civility you had. Look at the gross things you said. Wow. You should be ashamed. You should be embarrassed. This is their only play, guys. So that's why we need to have a united front against this nonsense. Because what would you rather have? Somebody who never said a politically incorrect thing in their entire life, but when they get in there, they're going to serve the corporations at every turn? Or somebody who said many politically incorrect things, but when they get in power, they're going to fight for you. They're going to fight against the corruption. They're going to fight in favor of the policy positions that the polls show that you favor. Which one would you rather have? I know which one I'd rather have. Okay, next. Mike Bloomberg made his race official. Um, He uh, released a launch video. We're not going to show the video because it's boring and it's exactly what you'd expect, so I'm not going to bother. But there is an angle to this story that I find fascinating that I wanted to discuss further. We touched on it briefly earlier. CNBC says, Mike Bloomberg is buying at least $31 million in TV ads ahead of potential 2020 run. Billionaire Mike Bloomberg is putting up a $31 million ad buy as he prepares to enter the 2020 Democratic primary. It's the latest move by the billionaire and his team in the buildup to his likely run for the Democratic nomination for president. Bloomberg's team has previously said he plans to spend over $100 million if he runs. I've heard estimates as high as one or two billion that he's willing to spend. Now, he made this whole big deal of, I'm not accepting any donations from anybody. Yeah, we know, because nobody was offering. <laughs> nobody wants to donate to you. So, yeah. But he's decided, I'll, I'll do it all on my own here. And um, it is a brazen attempt to buy the Democratic nomination. He's not even participating in the first four contests. He's hopping in and going straight to Super Tuesday. By the way, my theory as to why he's doing that is, if this flops, which it will, but he'll turn around and say, ah, I would have won, but I didn't, I didn't jump in early enough in Super Tuesday, the... I, you know, I should have done the New Hampshire and Iowa. If I did that, I probably would have won. He's giving himself a little out to save his billionaire ego, his very fragile billionaire ego. Now, a poll was done recently, and apparently only 19% of Democrats said they want him to run. Let me be clear. That's not 19% of Democrats support him. No. <laughs> that number's more like 1% or less. But only 19% of Democrats said he should even run. The overwhelming majority are like, dude, don't, don't do that. Don't run. What are you doing? Um, now, the other thing is, and this is, this is the angle of this story that everybody's missing. 
the real point here is not just to try, oh, okay, let me try to build up support. And by the way, $31 million in ad buys is a literal record. It's a record. So you're, if you're in certain states, you're going to be getting Bloomberg ads like crazy. And he's trying to up his name recognition, up his name recognition, up his name recognition as much as possible to gain support. But also, also, probably this is even the bigger point, to buy legitimacy with the media. That's what this is. Bloomberg's running for president. All his own money doing a $31 million ad buy. Let me ask you a question. Which networks are going to be really, really ruthless about his campaign and honest about his chances? Answer, none of them. You will not see conversation about Bloomberg like you see on this show anywhere in mainstream media. Anywhere. They're all going to treat him with kid gloves. Why? Because he helps pay their bills. He helps pay their bills. Also, a lot of the people on these networks know, hey, Bloomberg News could be a future employer of mine. So let me walk on eggshells a little bit, just to be safe, just to be secure here. That is 100% what's going to happen. There are conflicts of interest everywhere, man. He's an oligarch. Can we just call it what it is? Mike Bloomberg is an oligarch, and he's trying to buy the presidency. And it's a shame because any look at his record, well, you'll learn very, clear, very clearly and very quickly, he has no constituency, guys. None. None at all. None. Because his ideology is, as they said in a brilliant Atlantic article, paternalistic and coercive. That's his ideology. Stop and frisk, even though it's, it was unconstitutional. He since apologized for it, but that's because he's running for president. That's why he apologized for it. His entire time in office, they did stop and frisk in New York City, harassing members of the minority community, even though it's illegal and unconstitutional. And 99% of the time, they found absolutely nothing. That's one thing he's in favor of, banning the big gulps. That's another thing that's a giant part of his ideology. I just learned the other day, he banned bagel stores from donating bagels to homeless people when he was mayor. This guy is a textbook authoritarian in many ways. He wants to get the government involved in your life in all the ways the government shouldn't be involved in your life. And he doesn't want the government involved in your life in all the ways that they should be involved. For example, he's against Medicare for all. He's not in favor of a living wage. He will not be treated like the joke he is because he's buying legitimacy, because he has the money. The only reason he's getting any conversation at all is because he's a billionaire. That's it. Okay, let's talk about a terrible move from the Democrats here. Senate Democrats are doing very Senate Democrat-y thing, type things, uh, namely giving it to Republicans across the board. So take a look at what Common Dream says. Senate Democrats joined GOP to back automatic austerity bill that would gut social programs and hamstring bold policies. Title four? Is that four? (laughs) I don't know numerals anymore. That's sad. I think it's four. Title four of S-2024 
2765, Dayan explained, that's David Dayan, great reporter, would create an automatic process to slash potentially trillions of dollars from programs like Medicare, Medicaid, food stamps, and Obamacare subsidies. A budget resolution would pass in the first year of a new Congress. The next year, on February 15th, the Congressional Budget Office would compare the debt-GDP ratio projected in the budget resolution to a new projection that incorporates the evidence of the past year. If the new projection exceeds the budget resolutions, that would trigger a special automatic reconciliation process to effectively wipe out that gap. For the most part, cuts would have to come out of mandatory programs like health spending and nutrition assistance for the poor. Social Security is protected from reconciliation and could not be cut. The past three budget resolutions passed by Congress would have, under this bill, forced automatic reconciliation deficit cuts with a staggering total of $9.5 trillion. So understand exactly what they're saying there. They're saying if a budget is projected um, to run a certain deficit or, or be deficit neutral, let's say, for argument's sake, and then a year later, after that budget has been in place, we come back and crunch the numbers as to how accurate those predictions were. And let's say they predicted it was going to be deficit neutral, but really you ran a $300 billion deficit. What they say is, oh, under this proposal, we immediately have to offset that $300 billion deficit that we just ran. How are they going to do that? by targeting things which should be the last things that are targeted, by targeting social safety net programs, which are incredibly vital and people rely on. So do you understand the trick here? Do you understand the game that's being played? Notice how it always redirects and reverts back to the people who will feel the brunt of this are the least fortunate among us. Now, how many times have Republicans said, oh, my God, we care about the debt and the deficit, and we're, we want to be deficit neutral. We want to reduce the debt. This is what we want to do. This is what we care about. This is our ideology. And then they immediately propose a bill that adds trillions to the debt. I mean, that's what happened with their tax bill. That's exactly what happened with the tax bill. Look at the military budget. Met increase after increase after increase after increase, $80 billion, $100 billion. Democrats go right along and give Trump whatever he wants and then some. They never say, oh, let's pass a bill that says if there's a bigger deficit than predicted, that has to come out of the military budget. I can get behind that one, couldn't you? Oh, if there's a, if there's a, you know, a bigger deficit than predicted – then we have to get that back through automatic tax hikes on the top 1%. So if their rate is 35% and you run a deficit that that's X amount, that rate gets kicked up to whatever it has to be in order to pay off that. So it goes from 35% to 41% because, wow, we needed to fill that, that shortfall somehow. That's a more reasonable position. But no, they say, oh, if there is a deficit, we're going to come back and immediately do automatic cuts to the social safety net program. This is what the Democrats agreed to. Guys, it's a stealth way of cutting these programs while they still have plausible deniability to say, that's not what we're doing. Because what will they say? Oh, no, we think that the projections will be 
exactly what it ends up like. So it'll never run a bigger deficit than what the projection is. That's what we think. That's one thing they could say. They could just act like that's probably not going to happen, and then it's going to happen. So there it is. There you're a Democrat. See, this is why I get so frustrated. I know there are a lot of people out there who disagree with my position on impeachment. Okay, that's fine. But just understand there's a reason why they're all in on that. It's because they want to feel like they're resisting without actually resisting substantively. That's impeachment. Guys, I think they all know it's going to die in the Senate. I think they all know that it's not going to end up the way they want it to, and it actually could be a wash completely, or it could even hurt the Democrats at the ballot box. I think a lot of them are aware of that. They don't care. They want to have an argument where they could say to the base, we took on Trump, why? We took on Trump, we didn't impeach me, They want to be able to say that while still continuing business as usual. Because if you actually wanted to resist Trump and you actually wanted to fight the Republicans, this is thing number one that you would not go along with them on. Part and parcel of your ideology is supposed to be protecting the social safety net programs and, if anything, expanding it. They immediately gave away on that because they are not really resisting. They're complicit. And I think this story proves it better than almost any other. Okay. All right, let me take a final break real quick, and then when we come back, what do I got for you? Another example of the Democrats caving completely to the Republicans that wasn't discussed much in the media. And then we have Don Jr. getting paid from the RNC for his terrible book. And then we have a war on the First Amendment that you're not going to want to miss. So stay right there. We'll be right back with all that and much more.
y'all. We are back. We are back. We are back. Back, 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 Just had some pretzels. Pretty solid choice, if you don't ask me. Okay. Where were we? Oh, another victory handed to uh, Donald Trump. Democrats decided to do the polar opposite of resistance yet again last week. Common Dreams reports, handing Trump terrifying authoritarian surveillance powers, House Democrats uh, include Patriot Act reauthorization in funding bill. Wow, House Democrats are ignoring civil liberties and including a three-month straight reauthorization of the Patriot Act with zero reform in the continuing resolution. So this averts a government shutdown. um, And the important thing here and why this is, you know, important news here, okay, this is, this is a big deal, and the reason it's a big deal is the Patriot Act has a sunset clause. The Patriot Act would just expire if you did nothing. If you did nothing. Think about that, guys. It would expire if you did nothing. And what do the Democrats do? Swoop in, save the day for the Republicans and for the, uh, intelli- excuse me, the intelligence agencies, and uh, they reauthorize the Patriot Act. And here's how you know that this was sleazy. They did it on the second to last page of the bill. They tried to, like, slip it in. And here we are. So yet again, this is my frustration. There are... The Democrats, since they took control of Congress, they passed over 400 bills. A lot of those bills are good, by the way. Like, one of them is an increase in the minimum wage, for example. Another one is um, a really good anti-corruption bill, a really good voting rights bill. There's literally over 400 pieces of legislation. Most of them are really good. How many Democrats have you heard talk about that? Almost none, right? I never hear it. I never hear them talk about the bills that they pass, brag about it, try to put pressure on Mitch McConnell to act. Never hear it. I just don't hear it. I never hear it because they're not doing it. That's not what they're talking about. They're talking about impeachment. That's what they're talking about. Now, on top of not arguing for their position when they do the right thing, not applying political pressure when they do the right thing, oftentimes they just do the wrong thing. (laughs) Like, again, if you want to talk about an issue where You need to hashtag resist, and you should be all in on resisting. Here you go. Your position should be, be, under no circumstances do we reauthorize the Patriot Act. And, by the way, you do have bipartisan support on that because you will get some libertarian-leaning Republicans to cross the aisle and be with you. So we have to reckon with the fact that maybe the Democrats just don't believe in the proper position on this. Now, thankfully, you have Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Ilhan Omar we're like, I don't support this. I'm not in favor of reauthorizing the Patriot Act, so no. That's good, but so many of the rest of the Democrats are just 
They go right along with it. In the same way that they casually gave Donald Trump increased spying powers recently, in the same way that they casually gave him more money for the military budget than he even asked for, they're doing this. Just reauthorize the Patriot Act, even though it would go away if we did nothing. Just reauthorize it and um, further assist this administration and future administrations, further assist them in the total destruction of the Fourth Amendment and your protection from unreasonable search and seizure. Really pathetic, and uh, this is why many people despise politics. Okay, next. By the way, there will be no show on Thursday because it's Thanksgiving. And I will be having some family time. So no show Thursday, just so everybody knows. I don't think I mentioned that at the top of the show, even though I should have. This next story is wonderful because it's just so on brand for who Donald Trump Jr. is. Business Insider says, The Republican National Committee spent almost $100,000 to buy up copies of Donald Trump Jr.'s book, and it was probably a big reason he made it onto the New York Times bestseller list. Triggered debuted at the top of the New York Times bestseller list with a dagger symbol indicating a large percentage of the book sales come from special interest or bulk purchases. In a new campaign finance filing, the RNC revealed it spent $94,800 to Books a Million just days before Triggered was released, telling a Times reporter it bought several books to keep up with demand. The Times reporter Nick Confessori said the RNC got more than its money's worth for the apparent bulk purchase of the book because Trump Jr. raised money for the Republican Party while promoting the book. I just need you to stop and think about what if it was Chelsea Clinton and the DNC. Now, that's not too hard to imagine because, of course, the DNC was an arm of the Hillary Clinton campaign, as we learned from WikiLeaks, that they had veto power over press releases that the DNC would release. So really, it was just totally biased in favor of Hillary Clinton and against Bernie Sanders in 2016. But I reckon people on the right would be like, whoa, the DNC is buying up $100,000 worth of terrible books from Chelsea Clinton that she wrote? You want to talk about nepotism. That's as nepotistic as it gets. And yet here we are with Trump Jr., and he doesn't see that. He doesn't see that as a thing. There's been nothing funnier to me than watching, like, Trump Jr. and and Donald Trump Jr. and then Eric Trump go um, go after Hunter Biden for being a failed son and only making it through nepotism. Like, do you guys know who you are? <laughs> do you not understand that, like, you are him. He is you. You are one and the same. I mean, a lot of Trump's family members he brought into the White House. Again, Hillary Clinton brings Chelsea Clinton into the White House. I'm outraged. So why wouldn't I be outraged if Donald Trump brings his useless fail son of Jared Kushner, in this instance, the stepson, or Ivanka in there, Well, you know, this moron and the other moron decide to, you know, run his businesses and write a book, which I'm sure he didn't write. And it's now the 317th thing called Triggered, <laughs> which is like, okay, we got it. We, yeah, we know. Next will be snowflakes, microaggression, yada, yada. I got it. I know. You're, you're a tough guy. You're a truth teller. Understood. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, this is this is the kind of like soft corruption that regular people are disturbed by, but people inside the club are like, what do you mean? $100,000 worth of my books. And it's true that in the past, this is one of the go-to tricks of Republicans to get their names on the bestseller list, is they have right-wing think tanks. In this case, it's the RNC, which is even worse. But oftentimes, it's right-wing think tanks buying up various right-wing commentators' books and then giving them out for free to people who, you know, are on the mailing list or whatever it might be, or part of the the think tank. If they have events or whatever, you hand them out for free. So this is how you get guys like Mark Levin and Rush Limbaugh and Glenn Beck, guys like this. They're artificially propped up in many ways. And oftentimes they can't make it in the marketplace, but they need a right-wing think tank to come in and be their sugar daddy and be their savior. In the case of Rush Limbaugh, after the Sandra Fluke comments going back probably, what, 20 13, 2014 now, it was a while ago, um, he, all of his advertisers fled. I remember turning on his show in New York with his flagship station, and there was dead air in the breaks and then public service announcements. All his advertisers fled. What happened? White-wing think tanks came in and propped him up and gave him money. So he's a charity case. Why do they want him on the air? Why do they care so much? Well, really, he's being funded by corporations, because corporations give money to the right-wing think tanks, and right-wing think tanks gave the money to Rush, but it's corporations who want him on the air to keep doing their propaganda. So in many ways, as these guys ironically talk about, I'm all about like the free market, bro, and the free marketplace of ideas and whatnot, he's artificially propping himself up with disgusting moves like this, where the RNC buys up his book and then gives it out. Enough. The nepotism is gross, whether it's on the Democratic side or the Republican side. The unearned, you know, position that he has now, as if he's some sort of guru or something. He's a kid born with a silver spoon in his mouth, man. That's what he is. Keep it real. That's what it is. Now, he might not recognize that about himself, but that's because he has terrible self-perception. But that, without a doubt, is the category he falls into. Okay. Final story of the day before our little Thanksgiving break. We'll be back on Monday. Let's talk about the war on free speech. In many ways, there's a war on the First Amendment happening in this country now. One of the things we always talk about on this show, but it doesn't get much play anywhere else, is that um, a lot of states try to crack down on BDS support. BDS stands for Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions. Um, That is a movement to try to get Palestinian rights and dignity recognized by putting economic pressure on Israel. Um, There's different kinds of BDS. There's BDS of Israeli settlements, and there's BDS of all of Israel. but it's a nonviolent approach to try to, you know, get uh, Palestinian rights recognized. Now, in the case of, I believe it was in Houston when a hurricane hit there, they said in order to get hurricane money, you have to swear that you will not support BDS. Total, you know, total unconstitutional move there. You can't do that. A BDS uh, statute was struck down in Arizona. Courts struck it down. In fact, courts have repeatedly said you can't you know, 
have anti-BDS laws on the books because they are against the First Amendment. So that's one way in which we have a crackdown on the First Amendment. Here's another way. This is reporting from The Intercept here. The right is waging a war on the First Amendment. <clears throat> Sorry, my freaking throat. <clears throat> on the night of August 14th, a small group of around 20 Tucson, Arizona-based activists and community members stood outside the Pima County Adult Detention Complex making noise. They sang, they chanted, they banged drums and pans loud enough to reach the ears of those caged behind the facility's beige concrete walls. Standing on a sidewalk, some lit small handheld fireworks. Others held up a large banner bearing the famed prison abolitionist refrain, fire, fire to the prison. The message to those inside, as with most every noise demonstration held outside of prison, you're not alone. Noise demonstrations are a well-established practice held all around the country for showing solidarity with incarcerated people. They are a gesture of community against the prison system's brutal enforcement of isolation. In Tucson, that August night, according to one attendee, the inmates could be seen dancing and waving in response. The demonstration wound down on its own without any police intervention. The participants rolled up their banner, packed their in instruments, and began to disperse. Yet the police were waiting in the wings. Um, a mile away from the facility, along a river path, a dozen sheriffs in patrol cars surrounded and arrested a group they believed had taken part in the protest. The Tucson 12, so named by their supporters, now face the charge of felony riot, a statute that hasn't been used by Arizona prosecutors in years and until Donald Trump's presidency had been rarely invoked anywhere in the country. In the weeks and months uh, following Trump's 2017 inauguration, a wave of repressive anti-protest laws were pushed onto state house agendas nationwide. Republicans in Arizona attempted to pass some of the most heavy-handed legislation. The state Senate Bill 1142, dubbed an anti-rioting bill by its supporters, aimed to dramatically expand the state's existing rioting statutes. The law would have significantly lowered the bar for what counts as participation in a riot, and protesters who were deemed rioters would face hefty racketeering charges. The bill passed the state Senate but died in the House, yet, as the Tucson 12 case demonstrates, the bill wasn't necessary for prosecutors to come down hard on protesters. They're facing two years in prison. They're facing two years in prison. This is like the J, what was it, J12, J20 or something like that? Protesters on Inauguration Day who many journalists were arrested and then they faced up to... 20 years in prison because they say, oh, you participated in a riot, even though they didn't. So this is the new move. The new move is take people who are nonviolent protesters, claim that they're doing a riot, and give them prison time. If you don't recognize this for what it is, you're blind. This is, without a doubt, an attempt to suppress freedom of speech, free expression, free protest. That's what this is. This is an all-out assault, a war on the First Amendment. And guess what? It's mostly coming from the right. Now, I know, I know, it's in vogue nowadays, or at least it was up until maybe very recently, to just dunk on the left all day and act like the only threat to freedom of speech comes from purple-haired college kids who don't want conservative speakers. Now, I get it. I'm in favor of those speakers being able to speak, even if they have odious ideas, because I'm principled on this, and I believe in free speech and free expression. But 
the people who try to act like that's the only threat to free speech, number one, are wrong. Number two, are doubly wrong because this is an actual threat to the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. The, the purple-haired kids who are trying to stop conservative speakers, I disagree with them, but they're not doing anything that's violating the First Amendment. That's not a violation of the First Amendment because nobody has a, a right to come speak at a campus. That's not a right. The First Amendment really refers to the government cannot lock you up, cannot you know, crack down on you for speech and for protesting. That's the actual First Amendment. Now, again, I disagree with the purple-haired college kid because I disagree in principle because the principle of free speech that they're against. So there's an argument there that they shouldn't do that. But it is not literally unconstitutional as this move is, declaring peaceful protests, riots, which they're not, and then locking them up, trying to lock them up over it, that's the clearest crackdown on the First Amendment I've ever seen. So no, I support free speech. I support the First Amendment. And I do not think powerful people should try to shut up the people who aren't powerful through this, this method. This is an authoritarian crackdown, guys. That's what it is. And it's not going to stop. If you think, oh, this will be limited, no, it won't. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. And people who are in power and in authority, they uh, want to criminalize dissent because it allows them to do whatever they want to do a lot easier. And that's what we're witnessing here, whether it's the anti-BDS statutes or whether it's this move. And it's mostly coming from the right in terms of like Republican politicians who are going down this path, but it ain't just them. And, you know, Michael Bloomberg, for example, who now is a Democrat, he says, you know, he clearly is an authoritarian and he would, my guess is, be more than willing to entertain these kinds of ideas. So just we have to stand against this stuff on principle because we have to really believe in the First Amendment and believe in freedom of speech and free protest. That's really a cornerstone of, of what it is to be American, and we shouldn't give an inch on that. But it's very telling and very sad that this gets no coverage. I haven't heard anybody else talk about it. Credit to The Intercept for bringing it up. Outside of The Intercept, I haven't heard anybody talk about it. And this is really concerning to me because it's an actual concerted effort to take away our First Amendment and our right to protest. And if you're somebody on the right and you don't agree with them because they're, you know, protesting in favor of prisoners' rights, how are you going to feel if it's a Democrat in office and they're cracking down on your right to protest abortion? Whatever it might be, I don't care. You fill in the blank with whatever issue you care deeply about. What if they tried to round up Tea Party protesters and not allow them to speak their mind? How would you have felt? You would hate it, right? Well, now you stand in solidarity. You have to stand in solidarity with those you might even disagree with politically because the principle is the thing that matters here. And there's no doubt that it is a crackdown on the First Amendment. Okay. All right, y'all. We're out of time. I love you, baby. Everybody enjoy your Thanksgiving. I will see you on Monday. Um, I'm not sure if we have a Kylan Corrin. We might have a Kylan Corrin. But, yeah, other than that, you'll see me Monday. Anyway, much love, guys. Peace.